Welcome to Psychedelicast. Hosted by Clinton Cayley, this show is an interview-based podcast focused on offering listeners in-depth information concerning plant medicines, entheogens, and all subjects tangential to psychedelia. Join us in prying open the third eye. The following is an episode of Rawcast Recycle. This piece was originally recorded on the now defunct show Rawcast the Antisocial Commentary Podcast. However, the content does specifically relate to psychedelia, and we think there's some good information here. So if you notice some inconsistencies, that's just kind of the way it is due to the recording process. We are just recycling these for Psychedelicast. We hope that you enjoy this show just as much as our regular episodes. Salud. Salud, brethren. Dink. Cheers. Not All sp- right, you got the wine and everything, man. Yeah, I'm fancy. I'm not supposed to be doing this because I have to go to work in a few hours, but, you know, I think one beer is not going to kill me or... Yeah, or three, whatever. Intoxicate me. Oh, yeah, there's also an airport right here by my house, so sometimes you might get the, the planes flying over, but... Yeah, I have a room on the other side of the house with a little better sound quality, I think, but it's also where all the buses and police officers like to hang out, so... Yeah, I don't want to hang out where all the police officers are hanging out, man. Not, not usually. Sometimes you do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what, what instances would those be? <laughs> I guess well, if there's I, like somebody shooting at people or trying to rob you, that, that might make sense. Yeah, or you're trying to um, hide in plain sight. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's, yeah, good point. Yeah, we're right across the street from a military base, like a marine base. Uh-huh. And so we have helicopters circling around the house on a regular, and they come out here on the beach and do, like, water drills, you know? They set up some buoys, and the people jump out of a raft boat and swim around and, um, you know, do their exercises and things. So we're, like, right in the center of a fucking base. It's pretty so, interesting. So they're not looking for you then because no way. No, they would, they would find me because I'm the tallest, whitest, biggest, beardest guy in the entire state. So. <laughs> yeah, you kind of stand out, I assume. Yeah, if I committed a crime, they'd be like, it was that guy. You could still see him. Uh, yeah, obviously. He's uh, definitely bigger than everybody and whiter than everybody. It must have been him. It's kind of the reverse here in America. <laughs> yeah. No, I was like my second, maybe even the first year I was here, I was in the back of a truck with a turkey and two chickens that are in cages. And two Mexican people were driving the truck down the highway. And I was like, this is the most opposite shit I've ever been involved in in my yeah. life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it must be backwards day here in Mexico. <laughs> yeah, but it's been like that the whole time, basically. You know, I'm working for a Mexican guy on his land as a farmer. Right yeah. Now. You <laughs> but are, I'm here legally, so. You've, you've reversed the stereotype. Exactly, on accident. Well, good for you. That's what happened. Yeah. So, um, welcome to Rawcast, everybody. I'm Clint. This is my buddy, John Beecham. He is podcasting live uh via facetime from somewhere in mexico where are you at in mexico exactly i am in manzanillo colima which is on the pacific coast in the central part of the state i looked it up on google maps the other day and it looked like it was really fucking far away yeah i mean i just did a i just did a round trip to san antonio uh-huh. i visited the family over the holidays here and it took me like an hour and 10 minutes, really, or an hour and 30 minutes, the actual 
flight time. It's it's pretty close when you think about it like that. It only took an hour and a half from San Antonio. Damn, that's not bad at all. Okay, so it's not. I guess it just looks further on a map. I don't know. I'm not good at reading maps. <laughs> and and maps are weird, you know. Like all the history of our maps, like they show the United States and Europe and Russia and all these northern white countries as these huge big blobs. And then as you go further down the map, they get smaller and smaller. So South America's small and Africa's a lot smaller. But in reality, Africa could fit like Europe and America and Russia and all these other places inside of it. So but the, it just doesn't appear that way on any of the maps that we see. So the maps are just like geographically and, and size-wise incorrect? Yeah, like it's something they say it's because of the way you have to stretch everything to make it fit on the globe. Yeah. You know? And so all of the northern hemisphere uh, continents are like stretched out. And then as you go down towards the Antarctic, they just get smaller and smaller. That kind of makes but, sense. But there's real maps. Like you could say the maps of the actual size of all the continents, and it's different. They're like stretched out so you can see that every continent is, you know, the actual size of it is. It's pretty cool. That makes sense. I've never heard of that yeah. before, but that does, I mean, I guess just the way that like the visual field works, it kind of shrinks down. That makes sense. Huh. Yeah. Um, my dog farted, so. You got that going on. <laughs> yeah, it stinks really bad, dude. <laughs> Jesus Christ, talking you motherfucker. Asshole. Dude. Trying to have a professional podcast here, and you're just farting up a storm. <laughs> that is brutal. Oh my God, dude. That's, I, 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 didn't, I didn't make that up, man. It really fucking stinks in here. <laughs> Uh, take your time, crack a window, whatever. Yeah, you need to dude, do. for real, man. I can't breathe. <laughs> um, so let's uh, let's go ahead and start at like maybe uh, where we met, where we know each other from, and then we'll kind of move into life after College Station. And uh, I'm I'm really interested to kind of hear about your life experience, your life experiences post. Uh, I guess it's probably been what about a decade something like that Ooh, 2007 right I think. shit dude so it's been like 12 years yeah 2007 is when i went to college station and i Maybe think 2008 when we actually met i think i was there for a total of two or three years it yeah seems like a long time but it really wasn't i know that right well i think i kind of bumped into your the group of people that you ran with and yeah, like Tucker late and yeah like those. late 2007 2008 sounds about right and I was working for the largest multinational oil drilling company in the world, Transocean. How was that? It, I mean, it was interesting. I was, you know, one of the youngest people in my graduating class. There was one person younger than me. So when I went to work offshore for Transocean directly after high school, I went as a 17-year-old. And um, I just had a good friend whose dad was a big wig, and that's how the oil field works. They call it brother-in-law. You get brother-in-law in by yeah. somebody that you know. And my application got set on the top of the stack, and I went to do a formality interview in Houston. Uh-huh. And um, they were like, well, you already got the job. We just wanted to get to know you a little bit. And um, went through all that, went to the training in Louisiana, and had my first run-in with coonasses, which is a whole interesting breed of people. Yeah. Awesome. And, um, that's for sure started working on the oil rigs man which is basically a floating prison full of other degenerates and um you know the one the one lady on the whole it looks like thor and um but you're just out there for two weeks at a time but you make mad money and then you get to go home and do whatever you want for two weeks so it was a pretty interesting experience yeah, I, 
so that's what I remember is like I would uh, I would I'd be hanging out with those group of free- and by the way, dude, I just fixed the audio to where you're coming through loud and clear now. So awesome. so you if you want to sit back and relax or whatever, I can manipulate the audio more clearly now. It just is whatever's comfortable for you. So yeah, okay, thank oh. you. Absolutely. I'm, I'm glad I, I thought of what it was and I fixed it. Cool. Anyways, I remember uh, I would we would run into each other like every two weeks and we would usually party very, very hard with a group of people. Yeah. And then they would be like, yeah, Beecham has to go. And like everyone referred to you as Beecham back then. Does people still do that or are you? No, that was like a holdover from high school. Like I moved from Junction, Texas, which is – uh, Podunk, a little town in the middle of nowhere. I love you guys. Yeah. Uh, from there, like my my sophomore year of high school, I moved to Bandera, Texas, which is like a little less Podunk version of Junction. And so I got like a chance to kind of reinvent myself, and it just happened for me, really. Like I showed up to the school and I was fucking huge and big, and I was like, "Hey, this guy's gonna play football." And so, like, I went to the training camp, you know, two or three weeks in the summer before school started. And so I already had like this whole uh, thing happening around the fact that this giant guy just moved into town. And he's going to take us to state in football. Yeah. And they all just knew me as Beecham. And so everybody just called me Beecham. But I'm uh, the second oldest of six children when we're all two years apart. So it was like Beecham, 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 Beecham. And after like the fourth Beecham, like, we're going to have to come up with something else to call you people because yeah. there's too many. So what do they call you in Mexico? Do they just call you John or do they call well, you Juan, Juancito? They call me Jan or Yanni or, or Jonathan. Or, or El Güero, El Güero. El Güero, Oye Gringo. Yeah. All that kind of stuff. Right on. So, yeah. yeah. So I remember uh, we would, we like I was, before we got distracted by the uh, your slave name. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, we'd get together. We'd party really hard there in College Station and... I, you know, I don't really remember. I mean, honestly, we weren't we weren't particularly close. Um, Not really, we would kind of bump into each other randomly, and we would do a lot of drinking and uh, various other intoxicating substances together. And, Is that how we're talking? Talking about codes. We do a lot of drugs and drinking, uh, and then you'd be gone, and you'd come back every two weeks. And I don't know, dude. Like, I, I want to say for some reason you were kind of spoken about and like hushed like legendary type tones like people were like Beecham's coming back into town like we're like when you were coming back like everyone would start to kind of get riled up like dude we're gonna fucking rage way harder than we normally do (laughs) yeah so uh I, I that's that's kind of like the vibe I remember from from uh our uh what what I call it relationship or acquaintanceship and um, our lives at that time. So, yeah. what happened after? You know, I don't remember exactly when the last time I saw you was, but um, that was basically the extent of our of how we knew each other. And then that I went back to Houston, and you went elsewhere. I guess. Well. The way that broke down, and the reason that everybody was excited when I came back was because they were all broke college kids. You had that money. Was, that's right. Had money. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> I remember now. They're like, "Yeah, Beecham's coming back. Uh, he's got money." That. Yeah. So I wish it was because of how cool I was, but that was most of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Hey, man. I mean, 
I, no one ever it, wanted to hang out with me anyways. I was always broke too, so I didn't even get that much love. <laughs> that was a good part about it, you know? I mean, it was cool. It was. It did teach me how to work and all that. It was hard, you know, 12 hours a day. I appreciate it for that, but it's a, it's a weird mindset to uh, to go into and then come out of and then go into it and then come out of and then, like, try to build relationships with people on the side and, like, meet people and, like, grow up. And then, oh, I'm going to be gone for two weeks while you just continue doing whatever you're doing back home. And uh, it was weird, but I don't know. I was just, I would swing back and forth between like, oh, this is the greatest job ever. I'm making so much money. All I have to do is like study to be an electrician and you can get an even like double pay grade and be an electrician out there or study to be a rig operator or a drill manager or tool pusher or all this stuff. So there's a lot of opportunity, Yeah. but then the price of oil drops and everything goes to shit. And so you have to do something else and... So is that what uh, happened? You, you kind of got laid off or are you just – what happened with that job? Yeah, I, I got popped seven times for cannabis. Oh, shit. Yeah, and I just had a really good relationship with a nurse as a guy. Uh-huh. And um, it was like the fourth or fifth time that I failed the drug test. He just brought – he never told me anything. He just like took me aside and was like, hey, I've been passing you on all these tests. But – and he handed me a chart and showed me like how much you weigh and how long THC stays in your system and stuff like that. And he was like, "Try you can smoke the first two days, but then you got to stop and do some exercise and like a sauna or something before you come to work. Because if you fail another drug test and I'm not here, then you're going to be fired and blacklisted from ever working in another petroleum company ever again anywhere. Oh, shit. So were these like randomized drug tests? Like you didn't know when they were going to do it? Yeah, but the one that got me was not, I mean, not really. Like, I was involved in an incident, and I was a roustabout, which means that you work with the crane crews. And so on a ship, which we were, not a drilling rig, but a drilling ship, like a cruise ship with a derrick on the top that you run pipe into the ground with. Yeah. Um, they need you to, um, like, you can be randomly tested when you get on the helicopter to go to work. But what happened to me was we were doing this operation and I was down on the ground with the radio controlling, telling the crane operator what to do. And he didn't listen to me and pulled up really fast on the strap we were trying to get unstuck out from under one of the baskets and the basket tipped over and this basket is 80 feet long, made out of solid steel and, you know, weighs, I don't even know how many. So so a basket is not a real good name for that thing. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of uh, (laughs) a... Like a, yeah, it's more of like a giant. <laughs> but it's like, it's a, like a big trailer kind of thing that's made to like put drilling tools in and you put it on the crew boat. The crew boat takes it to the rig. The crane gets it off the crew boat, puts it on the, on the rig where they can get access to it. And so I was on the rig landing this thing and one of our straps got caught. So we just hooked up to that one strap to pull it out from under. And he just started pulling and it picked up one side of that huge basket and like slammed it over and it was like Ooh, and the whole weight started going and like felt and my i was standing in between that and another huge basket so i jumped up out from between the baskets but it landed on my leg and just kind of smacked but it like reached the end of its momentum point and like kind of pushed into my leg a little bit and then fell back out and didn't hurt anything really it was oh, like shit. could have smacked me that so if that would have like had that not had it not Fallen like that and gone back, it probably would have fucking just crushed your leg. Yeah, because I was on the radio like stop, 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 stop over and over again. And so he was stopping, but he'd already pulled on it. So he stopped and it like reached the top of the zenith 
and like fell a little bit, hit my leg, and my leg was just enough to like push it back the other way. So it smashed it a little bit and hurt like a motherfucker, uh-huh. but didn't do any crazy smash my leg in half damage. Yeah, but it would have like powdered your fucking bones though. Had yeah, you... it would have been it would have been skin to skin. Yeah. both sides of my touched together. It would have just flattened your leg like a fucking pancake. I'd be walking around on a fucking piece of metal right now. Yeah, you'd have no leg. Fuck, yeah. dude. Oh my god, that you got so lucky. Yeah, and so I was like limping around and stuff after that because the last thing you want to do is report an injury. <laughs> yeah, no, I know it's it's like that. And uh, yeah, I know what you mean, dude. <laughs> I know what you mean. But I had to, and everybody was like, "Dude, you can't fucking keep working. We just got here. You got two more weeks of this running up and down stairs and stuff, and you can barely walk. So you need to go to the nurse." And I was like, "Okay, well, it's good working with you guys." Yeah, because <laughs> I know I know what comes next, and that's a drug test. It's going to be an official one because we had um, like rig managers and stuff out there. We were a completion rig. Uh-huh. Sorry to get into the weeds on this, but a completion rig goes behind the people that do all the hard work and drill the wells. Uh-huh. And then like place all the equipment that's going to stay there. So it's like super expensive chrome piping that lives there from now on. And that's going to be what brings the oil out of the ground to the big machine that sits on top of the subsea unit that will then pump into a pipeline or whatever. Okay. So our operation was like a million dollars a day in cost. Yeah, I kind of gathered that. It sounds like a big fucking deal. Yeah, that's wild, bro. So yeah, we had bosses everywhere, Rick managers, people that were in control of like one of the three sections of the Gulf. And so my case was just like, well, yeah, you got to put them through all the proper channels. We got to do the drug test and we got to drug test the whole crew and everybody that was on the deck. And Fuck. Yeah, I was sitting there with the, with the nurse and I was just like, everybody, like three people had gone before me and it was like a 10 minute process. And I was sitting there at like minute 17, just like, so what? And he was just like looking at the strip and looking at me, and looking at the strip and looking at me. Yeah. And like, you got anything you want to tell me? Yeah, right. Well, <laughs> I was like, yeah, it was, it was nice working with you. I'll go get my stuff. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's odd because now I, I administer those, those drug tests in my job. I do the tin panel uh, urine tests. Uh-huh. Um, but it's not for it's not for like uh, employment or anything. It's usually to rule out, um, you know, drug use based on what their complaint is or the diagnosis is. Like if they come in seemingly as a psych patient, well, we need their urine because they might just have been tweaking for like four days and not sleeping and shit like that. You know. So. Yeah, we know why you're crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this makes a lot more sense now. Um, but yeah, it's weird now to be on that end of it. Um, and I still, I still have to, uh, get drug tested. So I have yeah, I get to, it. You're a narc. Yeah, I know. Yeah, <laughs> I, I've joined the dark side, unfortunately. Yeah. We, we all got to do, you know, ne- the necessary yeah. evils for the, for the almighty dollar. <laughs> as long as you keep your consciousness free, then you're going to be fine. Yeah. I feel okay about it. You know, um, because like yeah. I said, what we're doing is we're, what we're doing it for is to actually help people. So it's not like it's what the test that we're doing is going to cost someone their job or, have them hard up or go to court or something like that. That's just for us to rule out if they could be, you know, possible drug interactions and shit like that. So, um, but anyways, well, that's a bummer, dude. You know, I've had so many friends who lost, you know, really good jobs in the oil field, not necessarily exactly like that, but just when, when it, uh, when it all went down like that, I know a lot of people who got laid off. I went to school with a lot of people who were back in school 
because they needed a new career path because they had been working six figure oil jobs and now Gotta pay that boat off, man. Yeah. And now and now they had, you know, a useless you know, their 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 resume was useless at that point basically, which was crazy, you know. Yeah. I mean it won't be again supposedly in ten or twelve years, but that's just the the way that that industry works. And whenever they like the price of oil drops, you'll notice that the frequency of drug tests goes way the fuck up. Yeah. Because that's like, the best way to get rid of somebody. You signed a contract saying that if we ever catch you with drugs, we can fire you without any kind of questions or whatever. And it's a great way to clean house. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. yep. Yeah. That's how they use it, really. That's crazy. But for some reason, um, I applied for unemployment after that. And if you read the things that you can get unemployment from, failing a drug test is not one of them. Yeah. And I just filed it, placed it. And within two weeks, because Obama had just gotten elected, they were sending me $800 every two weeks. And oh. they did so for, for two and a half years. Shit. Yeah. <laughs> that ain't bad. Shit, bro, that ain't a bad deal at all. <laughs> I mean, I paid a lot of taxes, but I didn't pay that many taxes. Honestly. Yeah. Well, it could have been worse. Yeah, I could have had to get another job immediately. Instead, I got to go on vacation for two years. Yeah. So what did that consist of? What happened after that? Well, I mean, getting fired from the oil field was the best thing, the single best thing I can point to in my life that ever happened to me, honestly. Why, do you, was, why do you think that is? Or what, what, should, what do you mean by that? I mean that it's a terrible job. Like, I was being told by my superiors one time when a, a crane operator was, was putting diesel fuel in the crane tank and he fell asleep. And fell asleep for four hours, and when they were pumping like, um, I don't know, I don't remember how many hundreds of gallons a minute of diesel off the side into the ocean, Jesus. just ooh, dumping it out there at, at full speed, like you're trying to fill up a huge crane. Yeah. And um, it was just a huge ring of oil around the whole rig, and we didn't report it. We didn't um, call in an EPA or somebody to come and fix it. All we did was get a bunch of bottles of dish soap was they have stored just for this reason. And everybody on the whole rig had a bottle of dish soap over the side and you spray it onto the oil and it bonds with the oil and makes it sink to the bottom so that nobody sees it from a helicopter and gets you in trouble and you have to pay a bunch of fines and explain why the fuck there's a bunch of diesel in the ocean, you piece of shit. Oh my God. Yeah. That's that's very unethical. Yeah, and that's how the business runs, bro. That's like the baseline. Yeah. I think that's probably how most, you know, especially the big ones run you know just not you know on that basic concept yeah if you try to get all Greta Thunberg on them like hey no you can't do this you're hurting the environment it's like oh well we just found a lot of reasons to fire your ass you're not you're yeah not yeah that shit ain't gonna work out yeah for sure so from there they were paying me all this money and I started like this uh, I don't know this wild man streak in college station that uh, like we made a bunch of dimethyl tryptamine in my garage and grew a bunch of mushrooms and good uh, idea yeah it was awesome <laughs> I, mean, I didn't know what I was doing but I, I smoked DMT like 300 times holy shit you know in that year and a half that we were doing that or something like that like you just wait there's like an hour long time limit that it takes your blood to like re-level out and all of the MAO inhibitors to, to get out of your bloodstream. Yeah. 
and then you can smoke it again and have the ex exact same peak experience again. And then you can do it again. And then you can do it again. Why the fuck would you want to do that, dude? It's so, so intense and scary. <laughs> oh. I really don't know, man. It's just like, um, like the first drug I ever did. I smoked weed a bunch of times, but that's just the fucking plant that grows everywhere. If you accidentally drop a seed where there's enough water, you're going to grow some weed. Yeah. It's just a plant. But um, the first drug I ever did was MDMA. And I was like a freshman in high school. Uh -huh. And we're at the prom, a prom party in that Podunk Junction town I was talking about. Uh -huh. And um, somebody brought some MDMA and we all ate some and I could drink like 30 beers without getting drunk. And every song that I heard was the best song I ever heard. And every conversation I had was the best conversation I'd ever had with yeah. anybody. And how the <laughs> fuck is this a thing? And I don't know about it. I remember what? that what? feeling as well. I haven't taken MDMA in uh, since that time, this time that we were discussing earlier. I haven't taken it in over a decade. Um, but I do recall it being like the coolest thing ever. Yeah. That was my original feeling about it. After having done it a lot after that, that was like our favorite thing for a long time. Um, most of it's shit. Most of it is pressed in somebody's basement and it's mixed with caffeine and ginseng and, um, who knows what else, fentanyl, a lot of meth, a yeah. lot of cocaine, like whatever they can smash into that little tab that somebody's willing to pay for and feel like oh yeah something just happened to me when i ate that yeah that's like now you know uh i'm i'm really glad that my kind of pill and powder days are for the most part well behind me because dude Man. it's a dangerous game now dude with the fentanyl it's like you Amen. can die you can die real easy just simple recreational use man and that's how it's always been i think that every death that has ever been attributed to ecstasy or MDMA is that is yeah. messed up mixes and stuff. Like some people have died from, they say that you can overhydrate, overhydrate. Yeah. That and sounds like some bullshit. Most to me. <laughs> of the people that have died from overhydration died because somebody told them that if they don't drink a lot of water, they're going to die. So they drink too much. Yeah. So it's an educational issue. I mean, MDMA, I stay away from every chemical and, and I didn't believe Terrence McKenna when he said that before that, you really need to use something that has a long history of human use because if not, you don't even know what doors you're opening. Yeah. You know, you have no idea what you're in for. And I learned that shit hard doing 2CB. It's like, yeah, it's a hallucinogen, but from where and for what? You know, yeah. like, what's the point of just hallucinating? That means you're insane. Yeah, I've never uh, encountered 2CB. I've heard, I've had several f close friends who've uh, described it to me. And from just from their descriptions, I'm like, okay, yeah, I don't, I'm not interested in that. Um, what, what was your experience like with 2CB, just out of curiosity? Well, I always really looked up to Alexander Shulgin. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He was this doctor, I mean, he had permission from the DEA, which should have been a huge red flag right there. But yeah. he, uh, yeah. people still respect him. People in the community that I love still respect this guy because he was not only a psychonaut, but he was a... He made all these chemicals in his home laboratory. Yeah, he was a super chemist. Yeah, amazing, like genius chemist that made these chemicals, tested them on himself, himself first, and then later with his friends that were also really ballsy. Yeah. <laughs> they were one of the first ones to resynthesize MDMA in the 80s and be like, hey, this stuff has like phenomenal therapeutic value for people. Like, you can take somebody that's never been loved, has been abused their whole life, and give them this pill. 
that will make them feel all of the feelings they've been missing their whole life. It's, it's a chemical reaction and it's not completely true. You know, like it's a lie in some sense because you're just activating all those chemicals. But if that's the first time you ever had all those chemicals activated, it shows you that, hey, you know, this shit is possible. I can't be like this. It's not some dream. It's not some heaven. Like this, I can take this thing and then all the shit that I've been worrying about is gone. All I want to do is dance. I love the stranger I just met. Like, what the fuck is that? That's awesome. Yeah. In a lot of ways. But you have to reach some point with like, okay, I've seen that that's a possibility. I've seen that I am capable of those emotions with strangers and those feelings. But then you have to like start cultivating that stuff within yourself. And if you're just taking something and taking something and taking something to generate that feeling, then all you're really doing is knocking down your own ability to be able to do that chemically. You know what sure. I mean? Like steroids. And that's interesting because that, that, the point you're making right now kind of leads into something I wanted to discuss. Um, um, so just for this person's own uh, – not necessarily safety, but because they would be upset with me. I'm not going to divulge exactly who they are. Um, but there's a person in my life who I'm very close with, um, who has struggled deeply with PTSD for a lot of years and anxiety for a lot of years. Um, and so I've been discussing over the past probably couple years with this person, my personal anecdotes with psychedelics and how much they've helped me and, you know, just kind of trying to open this person up to the, the, possibility of using one of these medicines to assist with overcoming their anxieties and fears and, and traumas in their life. Um, and so this person recently has taken a couple different psychedelic trips on uh, psilocybin or had a couple different psychedelic experiences on psilocybin. This person relayed to me that they couldn't believe that there was something out there that they could take that would make them feel this way post experience i.e there's not dis- i mean there's only like three things there's so so the point i'm getting to though is i had to i had to explain to this person the way that you're looking at it now is just the beginning of your journey with this because right now you think the mushroom is you take you think that taking the mushroom is causing this effect in your life but as you work deeper and further with this you're going to learn that this compound is going to teach you how to handle your life and handle these things in a different way so that you're not looking to the mushroom to as the literal mechanism of healing but as the sort of portal to work deeper within yourself into further healing so and i i just say that to kind of um, go to the point you were making previously about people thinking that this magical pill exists that's going to stop them from feeling Doesn't. fear or anxiety or that's going to allow them to feel love and connection um you know and i think that's just for people who are looking to use these in a spiritual or a healing way i think that's the first step you know and then these sub- yeah. these these molecules and these compounds begin to show you over time that look we're here to guide you to your own healing you know basically yeah um that's an argument that my wife and i are still maintaining after seven years yeah. um we we met in the church of santo daime here in mexico oh wow yeah and uh, so that's a bunch of people that do psychedelics on a very 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 regular basis uh-huh. as a as a work and that's what they call it like before you start 
any ceremony, they say, buen trabajo, which means have a good work because this is going to be fucking hard and nobody's yeah. here for fun and good luck. Yeah. <laughs> on the other side. Well, their, their sacrament is ayahuasca, correct? <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, they don't call it ayahuasca because ayahuasca is a catch-all term. Okay. That has anything to do with two plants, one of them containing DMT, one of them containing an MAO inhibitor. Uh-huh. Uh, any of those two plants, there's a lot of those two plants in the world. There's sure. lots and lots and lots of different ways that you can get that chemical combination. Sure. But, um, like yache, for example, is like what Terrence McKenna was searching for when he went to the rainforest the first time, is like a Colombian Amazon version of that drink that has the two plants, the one that has the DMT and the one that makes you able to absorb it, but then also has tobacco so that you vomit like crazy and, and get rid of every toxin that you might have in your body. And then another plant that I don't know the name of, I forget, that increases the potency of the visions. Mm-hmm. And so you're getting this whole brew that if any one of those ingredients are mixed or less or more or whatever, can change the whole thing. And the Santo Daime specifically is made in communities of Santo Daime. There's a church, like the main center of the church is in Brazil in a place called Matia that takes 10 hours to get to in canoe up one of the tributaries of the Amazon River. And then any connection to the grid, anything like that, they have solar panels and medicines and stuff, but they bring it all in by canoe. Wow. And that's just one of a lot of satellite communities that they have scattered throughout, like a cult throughout the jungles. And they not only harvest wild, but they propagate the jagube and the plants and like plant their own plantations of it around where they live. But then the whole process is a ceremony. Like, you, the men and the women separate, and the men go into the jungle with machetes and things, and they go and searching out the vine. And it's big, like, it could be as big around as your leg and, and larger, and they grow for hundreds of years, and they're huge and woody and heavy. And so the men chop off pieces and bring it back, and chop off pieces and bring it back. And the women go out and collect the raina, they call it, which is the chakruna or, or the the psychotropia, whatever it is. Psychotria the, viridis. That's what it is. Yeah. Um, which is a really close relative of the coffee plant. Like if you have two of them next to each other, they look exactly the same, except from one of them has a lot of caffeine and one of them has a lot of DMT. Yeah. But um, the women go out, collect all the leaves, they bring them back, they separate anything with a spot or a blemish or a bug or whatever and pull it apart. And then the women um, grind, cut up all the leaves. I've never been there. It's called a fetio. I've never done the ceremony. I'm just describing it based on, you know, anecdotal knowledge. Sure. But they, they're singing and chanting the entire time they're doing this process, all together, all in the same tone, frequency, everything. It's not like somebody's doing the bass, somebody's doing the soprano, somebody's doing the melodies. No. Everybody's chanting in the same exact thing, saying the same exact thing at the same exact time, and somebody would like a maraca or something. And then um, the guys are doing the beating of the vines and breaking the pulp apart in these vines so that it can be boiled together with the other plant. And then they do that, and they're singing the whole time that they're uh, stirring the pot and making the substance. So if you've ever seen like the studies with this Japanese guy that was like freezing ice crystals with with beautiful words on them and like if you had like love and you froze the crystal then it would make this beautiful symmetrical formation but if you put hate or anger or fuck you and you froze the crystal it would come out all twisted and weird 
I have never heard that before. That's never heard that. That's I think it's crazy. called cymatics, but they do the same thing with rice. Like you take a rice that's kind of wet and you put it in a petri or a beaker and you write a nice word, you're wonderful or beautiful or love or something in a nice frequency on the glass and to set it there next to another one that you wrote, fuck you or you suck or I hate you or something bad. And the one that has the bad word or the bad emotion in it rots like, I don't know, way faster. It's black and gone. And the one that has love on it is still white and like there's no fungus growing on it. Nothing's happened. Huh. And so, yeah, that's, that's how I feel about it is that the intention behind the creation of the sacrament, if it is a sacrament that needs to be mixed or created, is super important. So when you get MDMA from the Love family in California, which is famous for making LSD since the 60s, and they're all about making beautiful stuff for beautiful people, and they're like uh, trying to impress those vibes into the creation, then when you take it, or when you take their LSD, it's a beautiful fucking experience. It's like light and happy and fun. But if you take the same MDMA or the same LSD, which is a chemical process to make, you, can, you used to be able to buy it super cheap until they outlawed every precursor chemical. But um, if somebody's making it just to make money, as cheap as they can or whatever, you're going to get a shitty experience out of that intention that they created it with. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and I would have never really considered that until my recent experiences with ayahuasca. And I saw all the care and the love and the various um, treatments that went into um just the way that it was prepared but we kind of got off track there so let's let's backtrack for a second um we were talking about you meeting your wife in the church of santo daime we were there because we were talking about oh y'all's difference in opinion about concerning um what basically what we were discussing about the drug versus the like in my camp I say that the MDMA or LSD or all of these chemically created chemicals, 2CI, whatever, I'm not going to include 2CI in that list, but my position was that it's better to have that experience than to not have any psychedelic type experience. Or it's better to take one of those chemical compounds that somebody made in a laboratory for a specific reason. It's better that than to live your whole life without ever having done any drugs or had that experience because for me when I took MDMA which is a chemical for the first time I realized immediately that I had been lied to about every fucking thing having to do with drugs you know I thought that with marijuana but marijuana always made me paranoid you know I'm really good at it now but it took a lot of practice to not be fucking schizo when I smoked it but um I I became the opposite as I got older I used to be very very good at it and now I've kind of gotten or, well, I haven't been smoking it recently because of my job and because of my drug testing situation. But yeah. uh, the last, the most recent year or so that I was using it, I was getting to the point of very, it, it wasn't even comfortable for me at all. I got, I was getting so introverted and so like. Uh, Can't even go to the grocery store without feeling like a weirdo. Yeah, know? yeah. Well, it's not only <laughs> like that, it's just that I would pick myself apart. Like I would kind of just get into this uh and it wasn't like in a very helpful way it was kind of in just like a paranoid bleak kind of dark way and i'm not a very nihilistic person by nature so it was like i don't know i was going into this um 
it was just really getting to the point where it was unhelpful and unhealthy to me, or that's how I felt at least. Well, um, my one of my inspirations, and I know I got to go back and touch on my wife's position because I just gave my position and kept on going. Yeah, we'll, we'll we'll get back around to it for sure. But one of uh, my favorite people in the world, Graham Hancock, who's like an uh, alternative archaeologist and historian, and basically just a journalist. He goes and takes all of these other researchers' information and puts it together and then shares it with people in a palatable way. I love and Graham he, Hancock. I, I'm familiar, but for those listening who are not familiar, that's a good introduction. But yeah, I love I love his work. He was one of my inspirations to go and uh, try ayahuasca for the first time. For yeah, sure. me too, definitely. His book, Supernatural was amazing it's like i've never heard anybody give so much credence to besides terrence mckenna to this shamanistic uh way of dealing with reality which was a real thing forever until you know we decided to burn all of them at the stake yeah i was just talking about that with uh, somebody who uh with one of my friends actually last night and i was like it's funny how these thousands of years of this human experience we've utilized all these um these things that were so good that brought communities together, the shamanistic view viewpoint of life, um, these these plant medicines, and in, in the last hundred years or so, we've all decided that those are obsolete and unhelpful and bad. So I'm like, hey, stupid savages! <laughs> what did y'all know about anything? We're yeah. progressing. And like, it doesn't it does isn't it odd that we're our societies are so fucked up and. Uh, we're destroying the earth and all of all of our people are anxious and depressed and fat and stupid in prison prison, yeah (laughs) and disconnected you know and we're discussing that just that like and she's like uh she was telling me well it's not just because of that it you know there are other uh factors involved i said yeah but don't you think that these having these experiences or lack thereof is um and causing people to be disconnected or to like you know like we have an epidemic of fatherless children like if more fathers were having these mystical experiences don't you think they'd be more involved in their children's life don't you think they'd be more interested and dedicated and that's you know that's just a single example but and i actually know that they would be for a fact yeah so do i because i feel more involved in everything in my life after these experiences (laughs) yeah like almost everybody else yeah so yeah and i that's another point i we, we discussed it's like do you realize that there are literally no negative side effects and there are massive massive positive outcomes to using these medicines and having these experiences they're life altering and they're um, even the scariest most intense difficult experience and quite often specifically those experiences are the most poignant and the most powerful teaching points so there's like there's no negative to it you know Unless you, I mean, bar the possible... No, there's no negative. You can say whatever you want. Like, there's that one fucking random person that doesn't have a good diet going in that is already crazy. Like, I am related to a person with schizoaffective disorder that I would not take on an ayahuasca trip. Yeah. I wouldn't. I wouldn't dope the water supply. I wouldn't make everybody take it. I wouldn't do a trick. I would wish that we were taught about these cultures that have used these substances specifically these substances forever as long as far back in history as we can see they've used mushrooms 
And this ayahuasca thing, who knows? But somehow these people wearing diapers in the jungle figured out how to mix these two random plants out of 50,000-something plants to get this amazing effect on a regular basis. Yeah. And not only that, like if you want to talk about their poison that they use for shooting monkeys to keep them from wrapping their tail around the branch whenever they shoot a monkey, because that's what they do. They automatically wrap their tail around, and then they just hang there 100 feet up. Uh-huh. So this poison darts that they make is made out of like 31 different plants and animal compounds. And it does the perfect job of stopping the central nervous system. Boom, everything just falls. And, yeah. the falls. and they're out there, what, eating potatoes and monkeys that shoot out of the trees. Like, how? What the fuck? Well, I think that they would probably say that the plant spirits taught them how to create these these alchemies of usefulness, you know? And that's what they say about They would be right, and we would say, no, you stupid, crazy Indians. Yeah. You have no idea what you're talking about. And yet we would never be able to get anywhere near creating something like that given the plethora of options. I was I was describing this to a, a friend of mine actually on, a, on another podcast a couple weeks back about the alchemy of ayahuasca and how it it's uh, has to be at least these two plants and sometimes you know depending on shaman and tradition and geography it'll be up to you know I'm sure some people use up to 20 30 different plants in their brew and it can be any number of things. And yeah. I was like, just consider that, how they found the two plants that, or the two of the plants that would work to brew this magical brew that gives you this amazing mystical experience. While they were busy being attacked by panthers and trying to live off of insects that are eating under a log or whatever. Yeah, and his his response was, oh yeah, man, it's just trial and error. I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? Just oh, trial. He died. Oh, he died too. <laughs> Oh, he died. No, he's dead. Oh, well, this guy, this guy's tripping balls. So that, that's kind of yeah. weird. I'm like, it, as many as many uh, uh, guinea pigs as that would take, bro, there's a lot of options in the fucking rainforest, man. They just happened to finally stumble across it. What, were they writing them all down, making sure they didn't use the same one again? Like With what? Was yeah. being a rock on another rock, trying to keep notes? Yeah, so I found that, uh, I found his res- his response, because, you know, it was just like, he, he was like, well, I, I know how they did it. I'm like, that doesn't really hold up under questioning, bud. <laughs> it doesn't. No. Uh, it makes more sense that they were given some sort of spiritual guidance by a mystical plant spirit to me. <laughs> Yeah, either that because like, what is the story of the Americas? I mean, they've they're kind of modifying it now because there's just too much evidence. But the story of all of the Americas is that thirteen thousand years ago, at the last ice minimum, there was a land bridge from Asia to the United States up in Alaska kind of area, and so everybody, all the people that live all the way down into Chile and in the Americas, came across that bridge at that time thirteen thousand years ago. And then populated all the way down into the very tip of South America. And then while they were just running their asses off to get to the bottom of South America, they decided to come up with all this awesome chemistry and all these things that we still can't explain, you know, like the terra preta, which is um, black earth that covers 10% of the Amazon basin that um, to this day, the people that own that land can harvest a meter of it and sell it to a local nursery or... Uh, you know, some kind of plant business or fertilizer business as, as really good organic soil at the premium price. And then 20 years later, can come back and that piece of land that they harvested has regrown that meter of soil. And that is a technology that us, like with all of our chemicals and all of our machines and 
we'll chop down a swath of rainforest, we'll plant soybeans or some stupid shit for like five years and irrigate with water we're pumping out of the aquifers. And that water is salted and will salt the landscape and make it so that nothing can grow there for years and years and years and years. And then we will cut down another piece of rainforest, plant some more soy and do the same thing again because the Amazonian soil is really poor. It's a rainforest. So all the water that falls all the time is taking all the nutrients and leaching them out of the soil. So yeah. that's why everything is, there's so much growth because all the nutrients are stored in the soil or in that little cap of leaf mold and stuff. But then it's just clay. So the people that used to live there before they died from diseases or whatever it was that wiped out everybody in the Americas when we came here from Europe and our dirty cities full of shit and rivers and all that stuff, when we came with all our diseases to these people that were super clean, living in the forest and eating fruit off the trees and stuff, and just wiped them out with our diseases, which makes me think that, yeah, there's probably some kind of um, reason, like some kind of cosmic reason that I don't understand why that happened, so I'm not going to demonize anybody involved in that process, but... We find the soil today covering 10% of the Amazon basin and it's made out of charcoal. So like today we chop down the forest and we burn it. We burn all the extra wood that's not valuable and can't be shipped away, we burn it down. And so all of that carbon is released into the air. But these people chopped down the forest, piled everything up in long strips and then brought in like peat moss and molds and stuff from the surrounding jungle and river basins and made like an oven. It covered the whole pile of wood and then would light it on fire and the lack of oxygen would keep it from like burning in a bright flame and burning everything into, into carbon. So it's just an oven. You're making an oven and you're sucking all the moisture out of this wood and stuff and you're left with charcoal at the end, which is just carbon. And it's, all the other stuff has been burned away, all the gases and nutrients and stuff of the wood is gone and you're left with charcoal, which is how we make charcoal today. And they would take that charcoal and mix it with fish waste, human excrement, uh, the stuff they threw away from their vegetables and food and make a compost and then build little islands in the rainforest and grow all of their food on that. And it's still a viable system today because a teaspoon of charcoal has a surface area of two tennis courts because it's just a hollowed out shell. It's just the carbon. So all the chambers and everything inside of the tree, the cell walls, everything is still there, but just in a shell. So the microorganisms and the, nutrients and everything and just live there like an apartment complex Damn. if you just if you just spread charcoal out in your garden it will absorb all the nutrients out of your garden and kill your plants so they made this like inoculated charcoal fertilizer that's super complex and used it to grow cities in the amazon jungle that's wild is that that sounds like some graham hancock type stuff where did you gather that from graham or where'd that come from well not originally he touched on it in his in his most recent book america before mm-hmm but the whole Terra Preta thing has been out for a long time. Like there's a movie on YouTube, a free movie that is in Portuguese, but uh, it's subtitled in English and tells the whole story of that, of us finding this amazing man-made organic gardening material that covers a huge swath of this huge landmass, which means that they were supporting huge populations sure. on the piece of land that today with our technology can support like 150 people. That's it. Yeah. And they were, Having cities of hundreds of thousands of people. That's wild. I'm gonna look into that tonight because uh, I work overnight, so I have quite often several hours to like explore and research random cool shit. So I'm gonna do that tonight. Oh, man. Um, you made a you you said something there that was an interesting point, and I kind of want to touch on it. Um, and it's sort of like a, a meander off back into psychedelia, I guess. Um, 
but you were saying that you were talking about the Europeans coming over and and basically uh, bastardizing the the Americas and pillaging and um, bringing their diseases and whatnot. And then you said there must be, you know, you didn't want to demonize that or pass too much judgment on that because there must be some sort of a cosmic reason or there must be some greater uh, purpose for that happening. Um, And, you know, that was interesting because during my uh, recent ayahuasca experience, that was something that it was trying that was being taught to me in a in a well, that was a lesson that was being taught to me that I never quite saw in that fashion. Um, so during the beginning of my first night drinking, I was having this very, very intense, very, what I would call, uh, fearful, fearful portion of the experience. Bad trip. Yeah. I wouldn't call it a bad trip. Um, I've, I've no, I've never had what I would call a bad trip. Amen. Um, yeah, (laughs) but, um, I was in the portion of the psychedelic experience, which is quite often the very beginning peak for me. That's the most intense and often fearful, difficult portion of it. Um, so I was experiencing this fear, but because I'm a fairly seasoned, uh, psychonaut, I understood that this is kind of the way that it goes. You have to have your trial by fire and then you get into the slower lull and you're able to sit with things and you're able to learn your lessons or whatever. Um, but during this peak experience, I was being shown and being given these visions and visuals and, uh, like these thoughts that were difficult and scary and uncomfortable to be with. And uh, some of them revolved around my physical death. Some of them revolved around just, um, uh, things that are kind of hard to put into words, but just the sensation of that psychedelic terror that is sometimes amorphous and kind of modulates itself through various forms of your own. Whatever you're afraid of. Exactly. So, <laughs> so I was going through that and I'm, and I'm having this entity speak to me, uh, subconsciously or within my head basically and uh, I realized that I'm able to ask it questions and sometimes it will answer me and sometimes it will answer me clearly sometimes it will answer me in a very cryptic way or it will give me like a non-answer so I'm asking it things like why are you trying to why are you trying to scare me why are you trying to dominate me like because it felt like that it felt like it was really flexing its power over me like look at yeah. what look at what I'm capable of like you thought that you you thought you knew shit basically you thought you knew what was about to happen to you you thought you were capable of handling this experience and so it's kind of flexing this really really massive intense power over me. And so I'm asking it, why are you doing this to me? And um, at first it's telling me, don't like, we're not going to tell you basically these cryptic kind of like non-answers and it continues. And so this fearful experience continues for X amount of time. And finally, as I'm asking it, 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 it begins to respond with questions to me. And it says, why is this causing you to be afraid? Like, why is this? a fearful experience for you. And so initially I'm like, well, this is just too intense. I, I don't understand, you know, I can't take this. Like, I I don't want to think about dying. I can't fathom the infinite. You're showing me things that I'm not capable of, 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 uh, comprehending. 
And so then it's like, nope, wrong answer. So we continue in this kind of cycle, you know? <laughs> and uh, eventually it continues to ask me, why is this bothering you? Why are you afraid of this? And uh, finally I realized that the answer is because I don't understand it. This is something that I don't, yep. I don't have a framework for. This is something that I have no experience with. And it's, it's, um, it's scaring me because I don't get it. And then it's like, okay, so is this experience in and of itself a scary experience or is your reaction to it or your misunderstanding of this experience causing your fear and your discomfort? And so it's taking me through these levels to get to the point, which is that my own reaction to this experience is what's causing me to be uncomfortable, not the... She was asking, she was asking, do you trust me or not, bro? Yeah, I guess yeah in a in a in a certain way yeah um but I think she was more trying to show to get me to understand viscerally that the pain that we often experience is um is mostly due to our misunderstandings about the things that are happening around us but also that it's usually a great stepping stone to further learning progress knowledge things like that and Always. and yeah so I, I think that's a roundabout way or I'm, I'm trying to relate that to what you were saying about the not demonizing things or not uh not passing judgment on things we may not understand or be able to see that's all i know is that i don't know i don't know <laughs> yeah. i don't know what's happening it's just crazy that's what smoking dmt 300 times showed me was Shit's crazy. I have no fucking idea what's going on. And I'm just glad to be able to think about it and wonder and try to find out because, I mean, I feel like that's what we're here for is try to figure out what is happening because it's crazy. Yeah, um, it, it is it is a, a fun and daunting and interesting thing to try to figure out what's going on here, especially, especially via the route of the psychedelic uh, medicine or the psychedelic substances, what have you. Um, because they are constantly um, more and more strange. No matter how many times you go back in, it's, it's never even touched the surface <laughs> of what's possible. Yeah, it's ever expanding, and it seems like the more often you visit, the less you know. <laughs> it's, it's like reverse. Yeah. <laughs> it's very exactly. strange. That's that's what taught me that. Like, um, I would. I had, we, we had like this really strange rig where I took like a light bulb and got rid of the metal part and then had some tongs, metal tongs that I grabbed the light bulb with and then like wired them shut so I could hold the light bulb comfortably. And this is like the first iteration. And we put the crystalline DMT that was kind of yellow because we weren't very good at the process, but we put that in there and smoke it. It tasted like plastic, you know, like yeah. melted plastic, uh, melted plastic. I'm familiar. Plastic. I'm familiar with the taste. <laughs> it's horrible. Yeah, I know. And um, immediately after that, like 15 seconds later, I was just sitting there with me and my little brother, my closest living relative, was sitting on the next. There was like a sectional sofa, and he was on this side, and I was on this side, and he smoked it, passed it to me. I smoked it, and then the wall section behind where his couch was just fell off, and the couch went with it, and my brother went with it. Just fell off, and then like behind the wall where it fell was a volcano, and he just slid off into the volcano. And I was sitting there like, "What the fuck is happening right now?" And this is just what I'm seeing, you know. Like, 
I don't feel afraid. Like, I don't feel like I'm going to die because the volcano is about to eat me. But I just watched my brother slide into the side of a volcano. Uh-huh. And then, like, reality would coalesce itself again. And then everything would be normal. And then, like, 45 minutes later, I'm like, that didn't happen. That wasn't real. <laughs> yeah. I just imagined all that stuff. And then I would smoke it again the next day or an hour later or whatever. And this time, these translucent um, pieces of, like, glass just kind of started floating in out of the ceiling and they had runes etched on them in this language I didn't understand. And there was like a, a pyramid of these rune glass things fell and like landed on my coffee table, but there was something on my coffee table. So it landed like sideways sitting on top of the thing that was on my coffee table. And I was like, wow, that's so weird. And then a piece of glass with the runes on it came down and like bisected my body and went right through this one eye, like halfway. So out of this side, I saw everything over here. But out of this side, I only saw the reflection of the piece of glass full of power, like glowing ruins that had just bisected my body. And then it would just like fade away and be gone. And then I'd smoke it again. And some little guy would be standing in the corner of the room. And, but only I could see him out of the corner of my eye. And then I'd look at him and he'd like fold up in on himself and like flop into another corner in the corner of my eye. And I'd look at him over there and he'd like flop back the other way. And I'd look at him and he'd flop up the stairs. Yeah. I don't uh, like those, made any uh, sense. I don't like those little jester guys, man. They, I don't know. They always, they're too mischievous for me. They always trip me out. They make me uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> me I'll, too. I think that's what they're about. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I love that. I'm always kind of like, yeah, I think that's what they want. They want us to feel so strange that, you, yeah, I think they want us to feel that just high, strange, bizarro sensation. Who knows? All I know <laughs> is that that shit's fucking crazy, and all you gotta do is smoke <laughs> this thing, and it'll happen. Like, something like that will happen every single time. Yeah. I mean, I've seen uh, the entire world disintegrate into uh, what it looked like was, you know that game that you play where there's like a bunch of little pegs on a wall and you drop a ball and it goes bink, 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 bink down the pegs and it lands in like a slot depending on how it goes across yeah, the Yeah, but pegs. it's all gravity. It's not like pinball. Yeah, no. It's like a, it, you put it in the top and it falls down the pegs to the bottom yeah. and it kind of runs like wherever it bounces randomly. Is it like a carnival game where you put it in a quarter but depending on where you put it in, maybe you'll get the good bounce that yes. makes the money? Exactly. So what I mean, this is just one uh, experience that I can remember very or one visualization that I can remember very clearly was that every single thing in my field of view, what seemed to me to be the entirety of reality, pixelated into like probably billions of tiny geometric cubes. And they all played that game as they tumbled down and there was like nothing behind it. And it was just like all of reality fractured and went bing, 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 and like yeah. disintegrated. Stuff like that every time. <laughs> and I was, uh, <laughs> I was like, that's, yeah. And I mean, that's kind of what everybody says. And that's really the only thing you can say is what the fuck, <laughs> you know? You know what? I'm never doing this again because it makes no sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that shit. Um, okay, let's go. Um, let's go, let's talk about your life in Mexico versus, uh, because it's 4.15 now, so I probably got about 45 more minutes, and dude, we've already okay. been chugging along here, and two-hour podcast is great for me, I like to do long ones anyways, especially with- Two volumes. Yeah, yeah, and we, and I, I would love to talk with you further and do further podcasts beyond this, but we got 45 minutes still, so we're good. Let's talk a little bit about life in Mexico, how's that been, and- uh, kind of maybe like a like a comparison contrast to life here in the U.S. And what have you been up to in Mexico? Because it seems like you've been doing some pretty cool shit or some pretty 
interesting shit. And so why don't you just tell us about that a little bit? Yeah, I'm trying to. I guess we can pick that up after uh, the oil field slash, um, what do you call it, workman's comp vacation or whatever it was. So, that whole, so just to clarify, that whole two and a half years of your workman's comp vacation, air quotes, was uh, spent in College Station with you just destro- just destroying your mind with with super potent psychedelics. <laughs> oh, no, that was like all that super potent mind destroying stuff happened while I was still working in the oil field. Oh, okay. One- once I left that job, it was like, okay, well, now I have a car payment on a Chrysler 300 and, uh, you know, a three-bedroom duplex or whatever and all this other stuff, and I no longer have those means to take care of all that. So okay. it was like, so what are we going to do? We're gonna, I, looked, I started selling knives for fucking Cutco. Oh, yeah. I got a set of Cutco's, dude. Them shits are dope. That's good, nice, bro. Yeah, they I are. can pick you up. I still got an employee discount. Oh yeah, <laughs> dude. Even with your employee discount, I can't afford those motherfuckers. My no, mom, they're way too expensive. My mom gave them to me. <laughs> the college kids and college age kids can extort their relatives to buy them if they feel sorry for them. Oh yeah, for sure. But so I did stuff like that, and like was looking at car dealerships and like all these whatever jobs just to keep on partying, I guess, and living in College Station but not going to school. But the time in the oil field, um, like I had this ranch in Junction, Texas, the podunk place we were talking about earlier. It's like 150 acres that my grandparents and uncle and mom and dad bought Uh for my grandfather to raise deer and hunt deer because that's his favorite thing. And so we had this land, which is basically in a desert or semi-arid landscape, you know, like it's already been ran. The Waya Ranch, which is one of the largest ranches in Texas for a while, besides like the King Ranch ran cattle all through there until everything was eaten. And then once the cattle ate everything, they brought in sheep and goats for like the, the mohair stuff, like the mohair wool they needed for World War II and ate. Like a goat can eat anything. A goat will climb a tree and rip off branches. So they basically decimated this landscape that um, used to be when you're riding your horse through there, you could take the grass and like tie it over the neck of your horse and people would people on horses would disappear into the grass. And today it's just like rocks and cedar trees and scattered mesquites and like Spanish oaks and almost desert landscape. So we had all this land and we weren't doing anything with it. So I started like researching stuff you could do with land and dry climates. And I came across permaculture, which is uh, permanent agriculture, which is a study or a science of how we can design systems that provide all of the needs that people need for their lives, the food, the clothing material, the shelter material, all that stuff in a way that is sustainable and not only sustainable, but uh, regenerative or productive. Like you're not only not taking from the land, you're adding back to the land as you take all the stuff you need to live off of and sell and make a market out of and everything else. But the whole design concept is based around the fact that everything needs to work together. All of the elements need to cost the least amount of energy possible. So you want to design it so that you... Your morning walk through the garden is also going by the chicken, so you can pick up the eggs and then you can check on the animals and like the baby animals in the barn or whatever. And so everything is specifically designed to be the least amount of steps, the least amount of work, the least amount of shoveling, the least, you know, you want to return everything and compost, like how is how to make the best compost and why it's the best and um, all this stuff. So I started learning about that and then realized that there was these organizations like Wolf, and uh, the one I use is called Grow Food. It is now um, default or whatever you say. It no longer exists. 
and there's a few other ones, Work Away, that you can um, search for people that have are working in sustainable or organic farming or has some kind of ecotourism business or something like that that is useful for the world. And then you go as a volunteer or intern to trade your labor for the experience of learning. Mm-hmm. And yeah. So that's how I got to Mexico. I was just searching and I found this place called Rancho San Antonio. And my ranch is like an hour away from San Antonio. I was like, oh, that sounds synchronicitous or whatever and clicked on that. I met these really awesome people in, in Mexico. And they had this big project. It was like a, a horse ranch they were redoing to be fruit trees and food forest and organic farming. And I bought my passport, did all that stuff. Um, you know, had all my hotels and flights and everything reserved. I was planning to go for six months. And um, right, like two weeks before I was supposed to fly, they're like, hey, the project got canceled. Um, the, the owner and his mom got in a fight and she won't let him do anything out there anymore. So um, my, my family and I have a small piece of land. We're trying to do the same kind of thing. So if you still want to come, because you already have the agreement, you can come and you can work on this piece of land. And um, so that's how I, I got down here. I just joined up with these people and they had this piece of land that they were trying to build greenhouses and sustainable farming. And I came down with them. And with, like after 10 minutes of being in the car with them, we started talking about... Uh, psychedelic mushroom and I was like oh I'm a member of this church of Central Daime where we take ayahuasca the sacrament every two weeks do you want to come and I was like yes <laughs> holy shit so um so that would have been your first uh this would be like the introduction to your first experience with ayahuasca yes with ayahuasca 2012 oh wow yeah that's pretty crazy so that is you know, and that's another thing that I've uh, that I find interesting, especially post uh, psychedelic experiences, is like the myriad synchronicities that seem to come up, and I work, bro. Yeah, and how they lead to like, like you know, just your your synchronicity of like fi- googling the or finding the San Antonio ranch, and it you being you know because you live near San Antonio, that leading you that decision leading you to this whole other life now that's just i love that concept it's so it's so that's cool. nothing <laughs> yeah. the, reason, the reason i started thinking about this whole thing in the first place was because i was reading this uh book by daniel pinchbeck called 2012 and it was like 2010 that this came out 2012 the return of quetzalcoatl quetzalcoatl yeah on where yeah it's and a it's a it's I, a funny spelled word <laughs> It is. It's, it's the sovereign plumed serpent. And it's a really, really rich history and a super interesting God. And I was reading this book by Daniel Pinchbeck, who is like, was, I would say, one of the um, torch carriers at the Terrence McKenna that continued doing psychedelic research on itself and writing about it like a journalist. And um, he wrote this book called Breaking Up in the Head, where he went and did Iboga in Africa, in Gabon, and um, went and did Santo Daime in Brazil and went and did all these other sacraments in different places and read a book about it. And I read like most of this book and I was like, bro, you got to read this book and gave it to my old roommate, David. I was like, you have to read this before I finished it. Was that David Harris? Yeah, David Harris. Damn. Yeah. I remember David. We used to, yeah, that, that was another David one. Of the character. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> and so I gave him that book and I, I, I think I was high on something, but I was like, you got to read this book. You have to, it's amazing. And I gave it to him without finishing it. And then I came to Mexico a year later or whatever it was. And, um, 
joined this the Santo Daime Church, went and did this like caminata ceremony where you hike into the mountains and and you go to a place and you drink uh, in the mountains in the woods and stuff and do the same kind of ceremony, but you know I don't know it's like a hiking version. And um, we went to this place called the Baths of Quetzalcoatl, and it's supposedly where Quetzalcoatl, the god, would go and bathe um, whenever he was done with all of his journeys and travels and stuff. And we can go into what he is as a deity. But um, I was like, wow, that's awesome. I'm here in the Baths of Quetzalcoatl. And I read about this like two years ago. And now I'm here without even having gone there on purpose or anything. I just, I didn't realize they were called that until I was already there. Like the Baths of who? Of Quetzalcoatl? No mummies. Like that's why I'm here in Mexico is because of that guy. Damn. And, uh, that's a, that's yeah. a pretty intense synchronicity. <laughs> and then... I picked that book up like three years after that and finished it. And the whole last part that I hadn't read was about Santo Daime and this church that I joined without realizing it because I'd read that book basically and decided to go to Mexico because that's where Quetzalcoatl was from. And then I read the end of the book and he's like, yeah, I went to the Santo Daime church in Mapilla, that place I was telling you about in Brazil and yeah. talked about the whole ceremony experience and everything. So I was like, oh shit, well, this was preordained or something. Yeah, so, <laughs> something weird is going on here for sure. Yeah, um, I'm going to have to check that out too, man. You're giving me some good uh, some good research materials here. All day, baby. Yeah. That's what I do. Hell yeah. Um, damn, that's wild. Okay, let's see. Where do we go from there? Um, where do we go from there? We've already gone pretty deep. Um, how are you liking your life in Mexico as... Yeah, I think I really didn't get into that. I just went back to the Santo Daime again. But, <laughs> so um, I came down here with that specific purpose of the uh, sustainable farming and stuff because of my land that I have back in Texas. And um, that just led me deeper and deeper down that rabbit hole of sustainability. And there's more people coming out all the time and like we don't... We're, we're using most of our land to grow food, to grow cows. Like we're growing grain to feed cows that don't have a digestive system to eat grain, but it makes them fat and heavy and full of marbling, which we love a lot. Hell yeah. So that is good. So we're going to grow, we destroy all this land, grow a bunch of grains that are genetically modified and covered in chemicals and then feed them to a cow that is genetically modified and full of chemicals. And it's going to get really fat really fast and then we're going to feed that to everybody every day for the rest of their lives and um that's just how it is when you say it like that it, it doesn't seem so cool anymore nothing cool really <laughs> it's really not that cool i was like, down i was cool. down up at the part about the marbling and then you you kind of lost me there now i kind of feel like you an can asshole. get good marbling but, i mean <laughs> you can get good marbling from an animal that lives in the sunlight and walks around every day doing what it loves which is eating it loves to eat. They love to walk around, eat. Every once in a while, they fuck and make a baby, and then go start eating some more, and then they drink, and then they eat, eat, eat. That kind of sounds sleep. like that kind of sounds like me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's a, I think a side effect of eating so many cows, like you're eating a being that loves to eat, so you're like absorbing the essence of. It. Yeah, <laughs> dude. Maybe I should stop doing that, and I won't be such a fat fuck anymore. <laughs> Oh man, come on! I think that I think like my dad is huge. He's been battling weight forever. He's got like a gastric bypass surgery. He's been four hundred and fifty pounds, uh, huge, huge, huge. And um, now he's doing ketogenic diet right now, and, and it's working out pretty well. He's dropping stuff fast. He enjoys it. He can eat all kinds of stuff that he loves. Mm-hmm. But I, he's a super emotional and, and empathetic guy, and I think that super emotional and empathetic people 
are living are just like all of us living inside of this world that is so inundated with horrible stuff all the time that sympathetic or empathetic people have to deal with no matter what they just feel everybody else's angst and anxiety and so they just layer on fat because it makes like this insulative layer between you and reality which fucking sucks and um that's an interesting theory yeah that's, that's the way I see it. And the psychopathic people that rise to the top of all of our corporations and are the success icons that we have in our society don't feel anything for anybody. And um, they're okay with like running over people's lives and stealing people's privacy and, and they whatever. Don't because much they're just worried about like what they think is the ideal it should be. And so that's why I think really like all the fat people I know are the nicest, sweetest people. I really want to connect with people, but you can't connect with people if everybody's anxious and, and worried and freaking out all the time. You know? <laughs> yeah, that's, that makes it difficult. Um, that's interesting. I don't feel that I'm, uh, I, you know, I've, I've struggled with my weight most of my life. I feel pretty, yeah. I feel pretty good where I'm at right now. Although I would like to lose, I've kind of like yo-yoed over the past. Well, over the past four or five years, I really was the first time in my life that I actually gave a shit. And realized that it was more about uh, my health and my my emotional, mental, physical health as opposed to like societal standards of how I should look and things like that, you know, because those like those motivations don't hold up over time for trying to lose weight. Yeah. Um, so I'm still trying to uh, like work that out and, and learn all those processes and learn that part of myself. And I actually took that into the ayahuasca experience that I had and I learned some things about that and I felt connected with my body and my physicality in a, like, a more spiritual way than I ever had before. Um, awesome. Yeah, and so, so she kind of told me, look, this is one thing that I want you to work on. Um, for yourself and for your own well general well-being is that you want your mind your soul and your body to be connected you want them to be as one so something is out of balance then they're all out of balance so you need to try to work to bring these all back into balance so that's that's a lesson that i learned that i'm still you know still working on and still trying to integrate that into my life if that's how you want to put it but uh, we all have our things yeah for sure and like i like i said i can see it now as a learning process and as a as a process in general because I never gave a shit until just the last couple of years and because I didn't give a shit I never learned anything about it so I'm having to like I'm trying to take this crash course you know <laughs> like um so experience is bliss man it's so easy to just ignore the reality but um, some people, like some people can be super healthy eating all vegetarian food. Some people can be super healthy eating all meat food. I can eat peanuts all day without an issue. Some person smells a peanut and they die. Yeah. Like we're that different as people. And I think that uh, stems to like drug use. Like some people can deal with marijuana. Some people can only do sativa. Some people can only do indica. Some people, it doesn't matter. They can do whatever. Um, psychedelic some people they just they already have so many natural inclinations to be open like my wife can take a the edge of a thimble of ayahuasca and be tripping balls for four hours and i have to like drink a shot and then drink another shot and then maybe after the other shot i'm like okay my ego can shut the fuck up enough for me to actually have an experience and you know, i've seen that happen over and over and over again like we're just that different and we got to figure out what works for us individually sure 
That's interesting. I, uh, I, I'm pretty susceptible to, uh, just as a small tangent, I'm pretty susceptible to the psychedelic as, as well. I, I'm pretty like, uh, my tolerance is very low. So, um, yeah. the shaman actually on my first night, he told me, he was like, I can tell, well, he was like, I can tell basically that you don't need a lot of ayahuasca. So we're going to give you a low dose and see how it goes. And if you're not having, um, uh, the experience that you're needing or wanting or whatever later we we'll offer you some more and you can kind of gauge how you're feeling so they poured me like the lowest dose in the entire maloka and i'm like i don't know about this dude like is this gonna even affect me so i take this little like pinch of ayahuasca and 40 minutes later i'm having the most cataclysmic experience i've ever had in my life you know um, so, How did that shaman know that? That's pretty interesting. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. And so, yeah. so then the next day we're in like our circle talking about our experience, and he's like, uh, he was like, well, you were, you seem to be very well connected last night. I think, I think we kind of nailed your, uh, I think we kind of nailed your dosage there. And I, because they came and asked me, they're like, do you want some more? And I was like, fuck no. <laughs> Oh, this is good. Thank you. Yeah, I was like, <laughs> the last thing I want on this planet Earth right now is more ayahuasca. <laughs> so yeah, that's how it is. Like, um, I take it every time, almost. There's sometimes when I said no to the second or third drink, because sometimes we do 11-hour ceremonies, and they're dancing ceremonies. Woo! So you're dancing the whole time, and then you're drinking every, like, two hours or so, basically, and it's 11 hours. So by the end of it, you drink, like, four or five or six times unless you stopped and um holy bejesus yeah but there's some people that will take the smallest amount and will never go back up again that's enough and there's some people that will drink and drink and drink and drink and nothing will ever happen and uh, i've seen people down like three shot glasses full of the same medicine that just floored this person that's drinking sip and nothing happened. It's like, I don't know. I don't get it. I don't know. And uh, there's a lot of the hymns, they call them. Like, that's the things that you sing in this. In this um... Like the uh, Icaros? Yeah, exactly. But they're uh, all in Portuguese. And they're all, like I was saying earlier, the same key, the same tone. The women and men are singing in the same place the whole time. We're separated. We're all sitting in a geom geometric formation. It's a um, eight, no, six-pointed star. And, and the men are on one side, the women are on the other side. And you're just singing and singing, and you have a maraca, so you're trying to keep the beat, and you're doing a specific step pattern this way and a step pattern that way. There's like three different ones that we use depending on whether it's like a march or a polka-type beat or a 3-3 three, three beat or whatever it is. It's different dances, but there's only three. Oh, and my so God, bro. That, I, dude, I wouldn't have been able to literally stand up. I don't know how the fuck you guys are dancing practice yeah right <laughs> yeah i was like i needed to piss for like the last like two hours and i was like it's not happening dude like i can't get up <laughs> yeah that's that's the cool thing about that format because there's no shaman everybody's there the lights are bright we're all working together there there is a leader the people that run the whole thing and organize the things and uh the ceremonies and pay for the place and all that stuff there are people in charge but they're not sitting there telling you, okay, this is going to happen, and you should drink this much, and you should do this much. And like, no, we're all coming together. We all realize that we don't have any fucking idea what's going on. And uh, we're all going to be the shaman together, and we're all going to work. And so, like, if you start feeling sick, like you need to vomit, or you need to pee, or even, or you need to leave the energy force that we're making here, 
and do that, but get your ass back because we already started the ceremony together and we're all in this together. So every time somebody drops off, the energy drops and everybody else has to do more work to maintain the work, whatever that is. And I think that we really don't know what it is that we're doing when we're imbibing these uh, substances and invoking these forces and doing these dances, but we're singing beautiful things and trying to get the souls back to the light and trying to bring enlightenment to everybody. And we're all doing it together. And it's like getting on a ship and going on a journey and then getting off at the end and like talking about it like, wow, that was crazy, right? Like what just yeah. happened? Well, you know, I didn't have the I didn't have the sense that I was – when I say that I, I was sitting there and I couldn't go piss, it was because I couldn't physically stand up and walk. Yeah. Like I didn't feel like I would be able to navigate standing and walking. Um, well, what did you drink? What was your uh, mix? It was just the two uh, – just the two um, – ingredient mix it was uh chacruna and banisteriopsis so um but like i said like the whole point that led us here my my doses um for psychedelics are are like if i i can take two grams of psilocybin and have a very intense experience you know of course like you know going i've gone up to three and a half four grams i've never hit the five grams which is my next what i'd like to try to do like my next target Although I don't like to look at it like that, like as though it's kind of like jumping in a wa- in some water that you know is way too cold. I was like, I can walk into this stuff and like get a little colder, a little colder, and be miserable the whole time, or I can just jump into it and um, be miserable for a couple of seconds, and then and then do it. Like um, one of the strongest trips I ever had was three point five grams of it. It was a penis envy mushrooms uh-huh. and never had anything like it like i could eat a gram of that stuff and it was like an eighth of anything else and eat an eighth of that and it's like a quarter of anything else you've ever had and i don't know what it was it's like the density or something but it was just so strong but i've gone and eaten 135 wet grams of I was going to ask you specifically about this because I saw you mention this and I was like, I need to, I want to hear a little (laughs) bit about this because this to me is fucking bonkers. (laughs) Yeah, it was. Like I went up there by myself on this piece of land that we have in central Mexico and they're just everywhere. And I was just like hiking through the mountains and I was like seeing locals and stuff. I'd never been there before. Like who the fuck is this crazy white guy walking through our mountains? But I was there was everywhere. It's like a cattle ranching a- area, and you'd come. I came across this little stream, and there was cow patties everywhere, and every one had like seven or eight calves on it, and they were all just like purple and awesome and huge. And I was like, "What did I just find?" Oh shit! And I just collecting them all, and then somebody came by on a donkey, and was like, "What are you doing?" And I was like, "I just found all these mushrooms." He's like, "No, those are crazy mushrooms. You can't take those. You'll go insane." <laughs> You're like, that's um, the point, motherfuckers. Yes, this is the point. <laughs> I found them. I'm right. <laughs> and so I collected them all. I gave my, my wife ate like one or two grams. And then I, I took one and I weighed it. And it was uh, 112 grams, the whole thing by itself. It was like a almost a dinner plate. It was like seven inches tall or something. Holy shit. That big around, you know, like an inch around. And I ate the whole entire thing. <laughs> I was like playing guitar and stuff afterwards, and, but yeah, and then you get to a point where like, okay, that that was too much, and um, you just gotta sit somewhere and grab onto something and go through that, and, it, and it's too much. Like, there's you don't have the mental capability to process 
that amount of information that you're accessing. It was the same thing the first time I smoked Zappo or the 5-MeO-DMP from the Toad. I smoked it like I was smoking the stuff I made in my garage. And it's not that at all. It's a way, way, way more potent version of that. And it comes directly from a natural source and it's still connected to that source. And so um, I did way too much and just everything just dissolved and you cease to be a being. You have no name or history or where you came from and you've got to go through that. You've got to literally die. And you're like clawing and scratching. I'm like, no, I am a thing. I promise. I remember something like something I know and then that just goes away too and then you're just like a disembodied consciousness that is experiencing all these things that you have no reference to and have never seen before and are never going to see again and I think that's too much yeah. <laughs> I think that there's limits to this thing and we can get a lot out of it by it um, I agree I tend to agree with you there although I have pushed my limits somewhat I've never gone to the extreme uh, my ayahuasca experiences were definitely my most potent uh, psychedelic experiences to date um, yeah. or at least the most just like <laughs> overwhelming otherworldly you know like Important. yeah that was the first time I you know I've had all these mind opening and consciousness expanding experiences that caused me to question basically everything I know and think but this was the first time that I've had you know I, I've pretty much held a fairly gnostic almost leaning toward atheistic uh view of me life up until having this intense ayahuasca experience where i was teetering on the edge and then it pushed me back the other way because i was like okay this is definitely beyond the realm of the scientific or the logical or the reasonable um this definitely is uh we're, we're piercing the veil here um, in a way that I had previously never done. So, um, yeah, that's why I won't listen to Richard Dawkins. I, I read a lot of his books when I was young, and um, I was an atheist for a while. But, like, dude, if somebody's sitting there telling you, and you're the foremost expert on you know, what it is to be alive and what it means to be a human, and that's what you do for a living, and you refuse to take one of these sacraments, mushrooms or ayahuasca, you never will. You never have in your whole life taken this thing that a lot of people are telling you, hey, well, just take this and then let's talk about this whole spiritual experience because I agree that religions are controlling us, are fucking us, are destroying the world, are destroying our history, are destroying our heritage, all that. They're doing that. Religions are. We need to stop that. Bro, because hold your thought for one second. I locked my girlfriend out. I have to go hit the lock. I'll be back in 30 seconds. Okay, I'm going to pee. Okay. Okay, well, I had to go let Rachel in, and Johnny Boy has hit the John, so I'm just sitting here staring at this lovely piece of artwork on the wall behind where he's sitting. 
Um, man, this has been a good podcast so far. We've only got about 15 minutes left. Um, I hope that you guys are all enjoying this discussion, this reconnecting, this remelding of minds across the years and across distance and time. Um, yeah, like we were talking earlier, me and him really weren't closely connected previously, but we've sort of reconnected over the last few weeks via Facebook, which was interesting. Uh, sometimes a powerful tool for good, quite often a powerful tool for bullshit. Um, but I think it's done a good thing in this uh, instance, and it has for me in the past. And uh, John has actually invited us down to come see him at some point. So I was just kind of like filling some space. Uh, he's back now from taking the, the massive shit that he needed to uh, drop. No, it's just like a four <laughs> beer pee. Yeah. That's a good one, dude. That's a good one. Uh, I'm, I'm envious of you. Four beers deep, five beers deep now. That's nice, man. I'm done, I'm done with work. Yeah. Just, nah, nice, man. Yeah, I work. Yeah, like I was saying, I work nights. So unfortunately, at my my and this is my Monday. So it's just about to. I'm just about to start my work week. But fuck all that, dude. Let's you get see. out there someday, man. You just keep on doing what you're doing, and then you're gonna be in control of your destiny. I hope so, man. I'd love to uh, be in control of my destiny. I feel pretty in control of it right now. I also feel like being in control is not so so important as I used to think that it was. Um, kind of overrated. Yeah, it's kind of it is definitely overrated because when you feel the need to constantly be in control, um, it never works out, and then it's painful to be out of outside of control. So, like, why try to be in control when it just hurts to not be there when you care so much about it? You know? <laughs> because I hate waking up and going to work at the same time every day. Yeah, I feel you on that. I think you know it's a balancing act. I think just like with everything, it's a. Uh, care you know i definitely want to work towards being financially free and stable and being able to direct my life in a sense yeah but uh the i think idea- you have a really awesome like skill like a profession that you can like i've seen like you're a radiologist right you check rate like scans of people's bones oh, well i'm not a radiologist i'm a radiologic technologist which means i acquire the the scans and the x-rays of people and then someone else reads them so i'm the guy so you who- run the machinery i run the machinery and take the pictures and then someone a doctor reads them yeah that's cool, man. I think that, that we all need to have something like that. That I mean, we can try to go off on tangents and do whatever we want and live against society and be antisocial. And um, that is almost always a heartache. But I'm glad that people like Terrence McKenna would go out and uh, do that for us, you know, like really break the mold, do whatever the fuck they wanted, drive themselves insane, um, you know, but... But tell us about it, you know? Like, what is it like out there? Okay, that kind of sucks. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you did it. You know, I felt like I needed to do that too, but it sounds like you were pretty fucking miserable out there by yourself. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And, I, and you know, I, I'm finding that balance. And I think that is really what it's about is, you know, I, I basically have my secret life that I live that I – well, I don't want to say secret because all the people closest to me and the people that I love are involved in it and are well Yeah, but, I mean, you spend a lot of your time in this other circle. Exactly. you have to be. I spend a lot of time in this other life where people perceive me one way and that perception has to be upheld or else I don't get paid. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's been my lifelong journey since then is that I want to be get paid 
and be able to just do what I want to do when I want to do it. Because even though I'm wrong a lot of the time, sometimes I'm right. You know, like sometimes doing way too much 2CB was a, not a good decision, but it also showed me things about my consciousness and that I can be deceived by my own consciousness and and really have gone into schizophrenia because of the choices that I made chemically and have stayed up way too long and not eaten enough and not brushed my teeth and gotten to these extreme points where everything you've ever been taught, everything you've ever learned doesn't even really matter anymore. Like you're past all that stuff and you usually die out there or go crazy or whatever. But if you can go out there and then come back and then share that experience with people in a way that they can digest and use for their own lives, I think that's a noble, a noble cause, a noble calling. I agree with that. And I think that, um, damn, I just lost my train of thought. We're talking about going out and bringing things back. Yeah, I think that is a noble cause and a noble calling. And I think some people are cut out for it and some people aren't. And I am trying to find out, you know, I'm trying to find out my place and all that. Because um, it's interesting that of all these uh, psychedelic and all these deeper journeys that I've taken, um, I meet some people, and and you kind of sound like one of these people, who you aren't fearful of this experience. I, every time I'm preparing to undertake one of these journeys, I have this internal battle that I have to wage with myself about the My wife too. She's been doing it 10 years longer than I have. Okay, good. So I'm not the only one. Every single time, every (laughs) single ceremony, every single trip, she's like, fuck this. I quit. I'm never doing this again. I don't want to go back there. I don't want to do it. And then she just does it. Like, I'm glad I did it, but it was horrible. You yeah. know, like it was horrible. She was right. And she still goes back and does it again because of the benefits, you know, like what you get out of it is better than the difficult. Yeah. And you know what the odd thing is, though, like like I told you earlier, I've never had what I would call or what I think is classically considered a bad trip. So no. my fears are kind of unfounded because generally, Mostly. generally I get into these I get into this experience and especially with psilocybin, this is a very common uh, thought that crosses my head as it comes on. I, I will think, why was I afraid of this again? This is so amazing. Why am I ever afraid of this? And then the trip will continue on into greater and deeper wonders and amazing shit and it, I'll never get scared. But before yeah. I before I eat those mushrooms, I always get fucking really scared. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know what I did, but I did some kind of switch, like, in my mind. After listening to Terrence McKenna describe describe it as, like, you're jumping into an abyss, and you're going to fall, and there's nothing to catch you. And so you start freaking out, and you know that's going to happen. But every single time, at the end of the fall, always, there's a feather bed. There's something nice to catch you there. Like, you go through this crazy stuff, but... That's why I go back to using just the sacraments, not not the stuff that we invented as humans that can also send you to these places, kind of. But mushrooms and, and ibogaine and ayahuasca and other things. There's not very many, but there's some other things that you can take. And you can go on these same journeys, you know. Um, what is it? The one that we, we smoke a lot. They used to sell it in head shops. Salvia, Salvia. de Oh God, bro! That was my oof. that that one destroyed me totally. Oof, bro! Oof, 
That shit's fucked up. Yeah, I, I got the I got the ever living shit scared out. That was actually you no know, that was my very first psychedelic experience was Salvia Divinorum. But yeah, it, like what was it? Like eight X, ten X? No, bro. It was like eighty or fifty or sixty or eighty or something stupid. X. Yes. Stupid. Yes, and so that's my, what white people always do. That's what we do with cocaine. <laughs> yeah, what we did with poppy plant, opium. That's what we did with marijuana. Like you, you smoke dabs, right? Uh, I, I've yeah, I have. I don't. I, I think I did like one time. Yeah, I, not my thing, dude. It's too strong. What is that about? Why? <laughs> yeah. it, it's, you know, like that's what I learned from growing cannabis. I worked on a farm in California for two years growing cannabis. Uh, organic, awesome shit, like the best stuff I've ever smoked in my life. But I've also grown it in my house and um, like taking the seed, put it in my mouth. I got the seed from somebody that grew it and loved it and treated it as medicine. Uh-huh. And he's like, hey, this is really good medicine. This is good stuff. This, this seed is really beautiful stuff. I took it. I put it in my mouth because they say that you can give your genetic information to the seed when huh. it's at that stage plant it and so the the cannabis plant which is an amazing human plant that grows everywhere humans are and we have receptors in our nervous system to receive cannabis and cannabinoids and cbds and stuff like that like it's a part of our chemical makeup somehow and that somehow is probably because we've been using it since we realized what would happen if we did and um the stuff I grew in my house was not very good. It was just an organic soil. It didn't have nutrients. It wasn't on any kind of cycle. I just planted it. It grew. It had tiny little buds. I took them off and smoked it and was like full of love immediately. Like, oh, yeah, what? This is amazing. Like, this is why people smoke. But most of the time, I mean, like the really high-end cannabis and stuff you're buying at the top of the shelf in the dispensary in Los Angeles or whatever is hydroponic chemical garbage that has been modified to like force the THD to produce. And so you're like raping the plant to get all this high um, content of THC out of it. And smoking that and be like, oh, I'm so fucking high. That's awesome. I don't like but it. Where did it come from? Like, how did you get to this point? All you're doing is making a beautiful, beautiful plant into a drug like we always do, like we did with the coca plant, which the, the Peruvians use to live at altitudes that people cannot live at. Yeah. Because it thins your blood enough and you can receive more oxygen through your breaths and it has super high amounts of calcium and vitamin E and vitamin A and vitamin B and all this other stuff that nothing has except for like Moringa or these other amazing fruits and trees. And we took it to a laboratory, sucked out the one thing that gives you a lot of energy and then flooded our inner cities with it and flooded the whole country with it. And like, oh, people are getting addicted to this. We need to make it illegal. No, we need to make the fucking scientific process you put it through illegal. The plant's fine. It's yeah. still fine. It's you sad. You can eat it every day and be fine. Yep. That, it, that's a pretty sad yet true outlook on the way that we treat these uh, things, you know, like these, these ama- yeah, I mean, you, ba- you pretty much said it all, dude. That's pretty fucked up. <laughs> we're making nature illegal. Yeah, and we're fucking like back. a mushroom pops out of shit on the ground, or detritus of like forests that fall down or something. So, the psilocybin mushroom grows on cow shit or, or some other ungulate herded animal, like a horse or a buffalo or whatever, and it grows on um, rotten trees, like a, like a landslide knocks down a bunch of forest. And so, what do humans do? We go around knocking down all of the trees building whatever we want to build and filling the extra area full of cows so that we can eat. 
So basically, the psilocybin mushroom has been following humanity through all of history. Everywhere we go, it's always there. You could just, almost any town in the United States, there's some time of the year where you can go into a cow field and find some mushrooms. They're there waiting for us. Yeah. It's just there to talk to us. Like the, the nature's way of communicating with humans that have cut ourselves off from nature. Yeah. We pretend like we exist outside of natural systems and we don't. Yeah. If we kill the natural systems, we die. Yeah, and then we we build these like uh, systems that um, like are perfect cultivation and breeding ground for these mushrooms or, or or cannabis, and then we outlaw it and say we've created this perfect like uh, system for it to grow and propagate. But we you can't have it though. <laughs> you can walk out there into a field and be like, you see that thing on, that's growing out of the shit right there? That's illegal. Yeah. You can't touch that. If you if we find you with that thing, that is eating shit and turning into a magical compound that can open your consciousness and change your reality and make you a better person. Like the people that did the first uh, American United States psilocybin trials with Timothy Leary and Harvard in the fifties, late fifties and sixties, they went to Mexico with the Mazatec Indians in Oaxaca, did the ceremony with them, brought those mushrooms back and started sharing them with other psychologists and stuff to do these tests and that was beautiful it was amazing the people that were a part of those tests 30 years later pointed that test as one of the most profound and important experiences of their entire lives that test they did in the college one time in the 50s that we let them do under strict supervision yeah and immediately after that a chemical showed up that goes kind of the same thing but it's also used in like MK ultra brainwashing labs and stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it took a beautiful natural process that humans have always had access to because any human forever could look at a cow shit or a buffalo shit or a wildebeest shit and be like, that looks like food. I'm going to eat some of that. Oh, not only did it, I didn't die, but I can talk now. And you know, that's kind of the short version of it. Yeah. But you have this food source that is there. The stone date theory, that's kinda of like what's pictured here on my t shirt little stone. That's what it is. Yeah. Stone date. <laughs> yeah. Except that he has an Amanita mascara. Yeah, I know. I was like this this shirt is a little bit uh non uh, contiguous, but it's too cool to pass up. <laughs> I mean, that's what Gordon Watson said, the guy that actually did all these tests in Mexico and then brought the stuff back in the first place, the psilocybin. His theory was that the root of all religion was that mushroom, the um, Amanita muscaria. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've uh, researched some of his work. Interesting yeah. guy. Him, I, he's an interesting character as well. Yeah. They all are. All these, psych- all these figureheads of psychedelia are interesting in their uh, own rights. Yeah, it's interesting, but now it's like being used in the other way, like Burning Man, which I always loved and wanted to go to since forever, has all of these like diabolical connotations and the owners of Google and Facebook go there every year and are now controlling all of what we see on media and they're doing so in a pretty nefarious sounding way, like getting rid of anybody that's talking about anything that thinks of conspiracy or maybe there's some kind of secret power in the government that's controlling things. And so we've given all this power away to these media and internet and social media platforms. And they're doing crazy ceremonies in the desert every year and then taking away more of our freedom. 
Yeah, and you know what? I think that may be a topic for a later podcast as we approach 5 o'clock here <laughs> in Houston, Texas, because I have to get ready to go to work. But, man, it's been great talking to you. This is going to – I think this is going to be a popular one. I've had a lot of fun here. Yeah, me too, brother. I'll do it anytime. Hell, yeah, dude. And I was talking to the camera while you are in the bathroom about uh, you uh, inviting me to come down and see you. And I am seriously going to take you up on that at some point here in the future – um, so if that, if that's option is still available, we're going to come wide open. Yeah. Dope dude. We're going to oh, come. I wish you could bring the bus down and everything, but until you're ready, we have a, in a, in a national airport that you can get through from some places internationally. Yeah. And if not, Guadalajara is not that far away. And... Oh man. I don't, I, I don't have any problem getting places where yeah. I want to go. I'll figure out a way to get there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, dude. Oh, that would be dope to bring the bus down there. Yeah. It's going to be a while, but, uh, that would be sick as fuck. In, anyways, man, thank you for uh, doing the show with me, um, and we'll do this again in the future. It would be really cool to come down there and just do one live with you. That would be fucking sick. So, it would, man. It's hard to talk myself into coming to Houston, but um, I don't yeah, blame, I'd love I, to have you. I, I don't blame you, dude. I'd much rather come to you than have you come to me, and I'm dead serious about that. Um, but anyways, man, um, good to reconnect with you, and uh, – We'll talk again in the future, and hopefully I'll come down there and see you soon. You as well, my man. All right, dude. Thanks for doing the show. Keep it raw casting. We fucking love you guys. We're out of here. All right, bro.